The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. The day I was fired, I walked back to my office, and when I got back to my office, on the phone, hanging on the phone, on hold, was Steven Spielberg and Bob Zemeckis. I walk in, and I pick up the phone, and they're laughing. They go, oh, my God, this is the best thing that's ever happened. I'm going, really? Like, (laughs) I'm trying to figure out how this is. And Zemeckis says, you know what, Jeffrey? Screw them. You just need to start your own studio. Welcome to The Path. I'm Ryan Roslansky, the CEO of LinkedIn. And on this show, I sit down with the world's top leaders to talk about the decisions that shape their unique careers and how these valuable lessons can help you forge your own path. Today, my guest is Jeffrey Katzenberg. Jeffrey's one of the most recognizable names in the movie industry. He was a mastermind behind the scenes at Paramount Studios, Disney, and co-founded one of the most successful studios in Hollywood, DreamWorks. So if you've ever watched films like The Lion King, Dead Poet Society, or Shrek, you can thank Jeffrey for that. But his career was filled with some very public failures and a lot of surprising pivots. Here's how Jeffrey Katzenberg paved his path. I want to go way, way back to the early days uh, of Jeffrey and maybe the first time you can remember as a young kid, even maybe what you wanted to be when you grew up. I think when I was about five or six years old, I wanted to be a fireman. I never got there, just to be clear. (laughs) I know when you were around 14 years old, you joined a political campaign. Yeah, actually slightly older than that, about 16, 15, 16 years old. uh, uh, um, John Lindsay was running for mayor of New York City in 1965. I went and volunteered in the the campaign, and I organized uh, hundreds of other teenagers to come every Friday and Saturday and Sunday to hand out flyers and stuff envelopes and put up signs and go to rallies. And it actually ended up having a pretty meaningful impact. Having succeeded at doing that and pretty much mostly on my own initiative, it just got the attention of the of the bosses. Yeah. And so they kind of dragged me along. And that really was, I felt like, where I actually got my education about people and lives. And I saw every facet of, of, of the great things that government can do for people, the services, the tragedies, yeah. you know, a fire in the middle of the night and a couple of hundred people put out of their homes. And how does the city respond to taking them in and finding them shelter? And so, you know, when I, you know, was meant to go to, to college, I showed up for the first day and realized sitting there that I actually was learning more every day doing what I was doing. And so I didn't go to college. At a certain point, things flip and you make this move into the entertainment industry. I'd just love to understand how that happened or what you even thought were any of the transferable skills that would make this make sense. Uh, Not that much logic in it, more emotion (laughs) than thought. So here's this, 1973, John Lindsay had run for president in Wisconsin and in Florida, lost in those primaries. And after that, I didn't go back to government. I just didn't feel like doing more of what I had been doing for a couple of years Mm -hmm. was actually a growth trajectory. So I thought, okay, I got to start over. 
1973, if you were entrepreneurial, very driven, ambitious, perseverance, you know, all of these qualities, and you wanted fortune and fame, there was one place that you needed to be, and that was Hollywood. Yeah. And so I used the networking of the people that I had met during those years of working for the mayor. And that was the beautiful thing is you got to meet everybody, yeah. I mean, literally from presidents to senators yeah. to kings to queens to movie moguls. <laughs> you got to meet them all. At least I did just being in the proximity of it. And so I just networked and I used one to meet another to get an introduction. And I went and I actually got hired. And I ultimately was hired by Barry Diller, CEO of Paramount Pictures. He hired me as his gopher. I've been very lucky in that these sort of key moments along in my career, people took an interest in it and actually invested in it, of which Barry is probably at the very top of that list, probably more than anyone else, because I worked for him for 11 years. And over the course of that, that time, you know, he kept moving me from one department to another department. Every time I sort of get to a point where I let, oh, okay, now I understand how you market a movie. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, then he moved me to distribution and I'd get the knack of that. And I go, okay, that's how you distribute a movie. And then to international and the business affairs. And so every time I figured something out, I'd get moved on to some other thing in it. And I didn't really, it was a little frustrating and didn't really fully understand or have any perspective on it. But the end result of that is, is that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 30 years old-ish. Yeah. And he, you know, and Michael Eisner, who had also come from yeah. ABC, was his partner. And, you know, they made me president of the movie studio. It's, again, unimaginable, right? And yet when it happened, I was so ready for the yeah. job because he made me ready for the job. You know, I didn't just get the job because some flash in the pan thing. I got it because I was actually trained yeah. and had the knowledge that when I landed there, I actually kind of knew what I needed to do to, yeah. to, to be successful at it. So Barry may have known it, but did you know along the way that, that moving around the jobs, learning every part of the business was a path? No, I not not only did I not, it frustrated me and in some instances really pissed me off. Mm. And he just said, get there and get to work. And I did. And so I always found something yeah. exciting and interesting about every one of those assignments. Yeah. And, you know, I always felt I was growing. You know, as long as you feel like you're learning and you're growing and things are additive for you that are going to have some value, just go with it. Jeffrey spent about 10 years at Paramount, making his mark as one of the most influential people in Hollywood. He developed a reputation in the industry for having an uncanny ability to identify blockbusters. Eventually, his boss, Michael Eisner, becomes CEO of Disney, and Jeffrey comes along for the ride. So Michael Eisner and I go to Disney, 1984. My job was the Walt Disney Studios. So movies, television, Disney Channel, all of that, home video, all of that was in yeah. that world and not doing very well at all at that time. And so my first day of work, I went into Michael's office. He said, well, come over here. I want to show you something. So we go to the corner window and he said, look over there. And I said, yeah. He says, you see that building there? I went, yeah. He said, do you know what they do there? I went, no, I have no idea. He said, well, that's where they make the animated movies. I went, oh, that's, that's nice. He said, and that's your problem. Now, I had never studied animation. I draw bad stick characters. That's how bad it is, right? So I'm not an artist in that regard. Maybe I went and saw Pinocchio, one or two movies as a child growing up, as we all did. 
but I knew nothing about animation. And he said, listen, that's the heart and soul of this company. Everything goes back to these animated movies. This is not optional. Yeah. We need to figure this out. So my problem became my passion. Yeah. And my passion became my expertise. My success has always been by surrounding myself with people that are smarter than me and know more than me. So I find people that know everything about something yeah, yeah. and try and put them in a place. And so, you know, amazing team of talents and artists and writers and directors and all of that. The thing I learned along the way became my mission statement. Whatever job I got, and it didn't matter whether it was to go get a cup of coffee or to, you know, deliver a script to somebody or to organize a preview. It's very simple. Just do better than they thought I was going to do. That's it. I mean, I know that sounds simplistic. And by the way, it doesn't mean you can achieve it every day, but that was just my natural tendency was I wanted to please people. Yeah. And I realized the way I please people, certainly at work, was do a good job. What does a good job do? Well, just do it better than they thought you were going to do it. And so from the minor to the major, yeah. I realized it's two words exceed expectations. When I was 20 years old, I just did it by instinct. And then when I was about 30 years old, I started to actually be calculated about it. And I realized that for people that I worked for, the more I exceeded their expectations, the rewards came. They gave me more responsibility, more opportunity. And how about then for the people that work for me? I want to be a better leader than they thought. In all respects, I wanted to exceed their expectations. And then the light bulb goes off and goes, well, wait a minute. What could be more important than exceeding the expectations of your customer? That's how you get success and sometimes blockbusters when you really exceed their expectations. So then I actually took the next step and I thought about it in terms of my friends and my friendships. So I invest in my friendships <laughs> kind of methodically and how do I exceed their expectations? Yeah. Now I'm going to go one step further. I did it with my children because I was not that father that was home every night for dinner. And so I tried to compensate and do other things that would exceed their expectations and surprise them and delight them in ways. And then finally, I'm happily married for 48 years. Love her as much today as the first day I met her. It's hard to exceed her expectations. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's so simple. It's so powerful. Jeffrey spent a decade as the chairman of Walt Disney Studios. Under his leadership, the animation department produced landmark films like The Lion King, The Little Mermaid, and Beauty and the Beast. Jeffrey also produced live-action hits like Sister Act and nurtured incredible talent like Julia Roberts. He was campaigning to become second in charge of the company. But then in 1994, there was a shakeup in Disney's C-suite. And instead of being promoted, Jeffrey was pushed out. And for me, the most interesting thing about this chapter of his life is how he dealt with it. I found something really fascinating, which is, you know, our production team had sent over just kind of a make sure we have your career path right. And in part of it, we had said, after this amazing, you know, run at Disney that you left Disney. That's nice. I got fired. Well, you actually edited the document to make sure we knew you got fired. You know, you have to, you have to own it all. <laughs> it's not optional. Like you get to edit chapters out along the way. 
And, you know, there's that old classic saying, anything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm -hmm. And I've had some big setbacks over the years. And in each and every case, I tried to learn from it. I tried to be better from it. Tried to make sure I didn't make the same one again. But I have been credited and accredited for a wealth of success. Mm -hmm. And owning my failures is, in my book, as important or actually more than owning my successes. I think it's such a, an amazing perspective to have, which is doing things that are unique and original are essential, if not existential, yeah. to succeed. You have to keep reinventing. You have to try new things. And by definition, if you are doing something that is unique and original, equals risk. And if you're going to do things that have risk, risk equals, from time to time, failure. Both success and failure are a derivative of risk. So it's very simple. If you don't take risk, you won't do something that's new or unique or original. And so creating an environment in which failing is at least in the equation, it's very, very powerful and very empowering and you know very uh, nurturing. And so whether it's getting fired at Disney, yeah. which was a cataclysmic moment, lasted for about eight seconds, and that's exactly my point, and that's the lesson out of it, which is one door closes and another one opens and you just don't know. And even so for something like you know Quibi, I'm proud to own the failure, I'm not proud of the failure. Sure. I'm humbled by the failure, but I'm proud of what we tried. It was a moonshot, it's okay. Yeah. It's all right. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't fun failing. I don't, don't, I don't recommend it. Sure. You, you do it, but it's going to come. Going back to Disney, the day I was fired, I walked back to my office. And when I got back to my office, on the phone, hanging on the phone, on hold, was Steven Spielberg and Bob Zemeckis, who were vacationing together in the Bahamas or Jamaica or someplace. And I walk in and I pick up the phone. And they're laughing. They go, oh, my God, this is the... Best thing that's ever happened. I'm going, really? Like, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how this is. And Zemeckis says, you know what, Jeffrey? Screw them. You just need to start your own studio. And then they went on with all the different things. I said, well, okay, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And I hung the phone up. I went, whoa, that's a big idea. That seems improbable, probably impossible. And so, you know, <laughs> two months later, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> we, we, we started. Jeffrey, Steven Spielberg, and David Geffen launched DreamWorks, the studio behind some of the biggest films in Hollywood. A couple of years later, Jeffrey became CEO of DreamWorks Animation, a spinoff of DreamWorks. But then, in 2016, Jeffrey and his team sell DreamWorks Animation to Comcast, leaving Jeffrey without a job for the first time in over two decades. Then, just a few months later, he founded an investment firm named Wonderco. You spend a lot of your time these days uh, helping other entrepreneurs and companies get going. What was kind of that, you know, point where you decided you wanted to get into investing? In the in the media, entertainment, storytelling, whatever lane you're in, movies, animation, TV, Broadway shows, whatever, the core of that, the essence of that is talent. And I have spent a lifetime curating talent. I'm not the talent. 
I was a truffle hunter. <laughs> like that's the gig. Yeah. I saw Julia Roberts do a little scene in Steel Magnolias and went, whoa. And we cast her in Pretty Woman, you know, life-changing. Her, us, me. So truffle hunting has been my lane for 40 years. That's the gig. So six, seven years ago, I sell DreamWorks and I wake up the next morning and I go, hmm, if you were 23 years old today and you wanted to go to the place where there's the most innovation and creativity and you want fortune and fame, where would you go? Right down here, Silicon Valley. Technology and digital technology in particular impacted every single step of my career, whether it was the introduction of special effects mm -hmm. and then the impact into animation. And so I had over literally this 40 year period of time, very consistently been coming to Silicon Valley. I partnered with Andy Grove at Intel. I partnered with a couple of different CEOs at Hewlett Packard. I partnered with Steve Jobs on Pixar and brought Pixar you know, to Disney. And it's like, so I'd been coming up here. And when I was coming up here, I would see these, you know, Valentine at Sequoia and Perkins at Kleiner Perkins. They were truffle hunters. And it stuck with me. At the time, I didn't sort of put that together. But that's what they did. They went, they found people with these characteristics with, you know, driven, ambitious and perseverance and, and an idea. And then they helped them realize it. And so six, seven years ago, I said, well, okay, I think these skills that I have built over the years, I think this would be a good fit. To date, WonderCo has built and invested in successful companies like Airtable, Robinhood, and Frame.io. So my last question, if you had a young member on LinkedIn just starting their career and ask you, Jeffrey, what's your best piece of career advice? Don't try and figure it out. I would actually say, whatever it is, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you don't have a crystal ball. I didn't have a crystal ball. Don't try and look around the corner or over the horizon. Take what is in front of you. Make the very most of that in little ways, medium ways, and in big ways. And honestly, most of all, try and exceed expectations. Here's what stuck with me most about Jeffrey's story. Setting really high standards for yourself can propel you forward in your career. And here's why. If you know the goal is sky high, you know to expect failure. And when excellence is your standard instead of perfection, you can focus on what's right in front of you and take risks to be the very best. When Jeffrey started making a name for himself in Hollywood, he focused on exceeding expectations, even in the simplest of jobs. He always wanted to be the best and do original work instead of being perfect. And he started paving his way to blockbuster success. Jeffrey also came up in an environment that empowered failure. So thinking about failure as a valuable learning experience came easy to him. But for most people, the fear of failure is one of the biggest obstacles to achieving their potential and aiming high. So how can you shift that mindset? We'll go into that after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. 
So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Welcome back to The Path. Before the break, we saw how Jeffrey Katzenberg became one of the most recognizable names in Hollywood by setting a goal to exceed expectations. But along the way, Jeffrey had some big failures, like getting fired from Disney, or having his startup Quibi fail after less than a year. Those were hard losses, but in the end, Jeffrey was always okay with failure because he saw it as something normal that happens every day. So what are the steps to embracing failure? We've got author and leadership coach Charlene Lee with some suggestions on how to make the mental shift. We are raised in school to aim for A's, which means being perfect, getting 100% on tests, And so our education system doesn't encourage us to fail, basically, because it says we have to always succeed, and that means being perfect. It is virtually impossible to achieve 100% to be perfect all the time. The biggest challenge of shifting your failure mindset is the emotional baggage that comes with the idea of failing. There is shame. We're embarrassed. We don't want to admit that we have failed because of how we think we're going to be perceived by people around us, because it is not something that's acceptable. We talk about people's success. We want to tout and celebrate all the things that have gone well, and we want to hide underneath and and shove into the closet all the times when things didn't work out. The reason why there's so much shame around failure is that we feel we have personally failed, and it's not you having failed. It's the project. It's the task that has not succeeded and and met your expectations of where you want to be. But you have not failed because you have done your best. You've put your best effort into this. So how could that possibly be a failure? How could you think of that as a failure? So give yourself some grace and say, well, I've put my best effort into it. This is where I am. Where do I need to go now? So I think the number one thing is to remove that shame. And to think about failure as something that happens when you don't achieve your goal on the first try. And it's a data point. If your goal was to reach X and you were X minus Y and you're not there, then you know what that gap is now that you have to reach. You know what gap you have to fill in order to get to the place where you want to get to. Look at the situation with what I call equanimity, where you're removing that baggage of emotion and you can look at the reality of where you are, then you can move forward 
But if you're carrying the shame and that embarrassment, then you just carry an extra burden that you don't need to be. There are two additional steps you can take to temper the emotional responses to failure. The second one is practicing humility. It's knowing that you don't know everything and that because you don't know everything, you can't be expected to have all the answers. And so when you walk into a situation, you can say, I don't know, and it's okay. Is that a failure? It's admitting the fact that you actually don't know what the answer is. So when you can practice humility on a daily basis, instead of having this pressure to always have the answer, you can be open to a learner's mindset. And that is absolutely crucial because if you want to set off to learn, then knowing that you don't know everything is one of the first things you have to admit, that you don't know everything so you could learn. And along the way, you will learn things that you didn't know, and it will reveal itself in some ways as a failure. And so having the humility to accept that, having the humility as that foundational base emotionally to be ready for that is, is a key way to prepare yourself. And the third thing is to have a really robust support system. There are days when you, no matter what you do to prepare yourself, is you're just going to feel bad. So having a robust support system to give you that foundational support when your own resilience is just really worn down is a really good backstop to know that when failure does come your way, that you'll be prepared. I love Charlene's advice to think of failure like any other data point. It's just information you can use to make a different decision next time. The best thing you can do is learn to embrace failure. Fail fast, fail often, and fail smart. It's impossible to be perfect 100% of the time. So when failure inevitably comes your way, what can you do? The first thing is anticipate what failures could happen. This is part of the scenario planning, the risk mitigation that you take. Now, what's the worst case scenario that could happen? And so when you can set that expectation up front, then you, when the worst case happens, you're not surprised. If you can anticipate the worst failures, then you're prepared for that and you're okay taking that risk versus not even thinking about it. Pushing that reality and possibility aside is, is not a good way to prepare yourself for success, frankly, because you're worried then, well, what if it doesn't work? And if you're not thinking through in concrete ways how to mitigate the things that could go wrong, then inevitably something goes wrong and you're not prepared. The, the other thing I would say is to redefine what success means. And by that definition, also what failure means. So as you're setting off on a, an adventure, is success 100% reaching your goal? If so, then you have the question, am I setting the bar high enough? Because if I don't build in the fact that I won't reach my goal, then I'm probably not pushing myself very well. So if I know I can hit 100% of my goal, then there's not very much risk in it. If I think I can extend that goal another 50% and only reach you know, two-thirds of the way out, then I'm really happy because I'm at where I thought I would be, but I also will do things in a very different way to hit a higher goal. I'll set off on my journey in a very different way. So how do we define success? How do we define failure? I think it is about how do you work well? And failure is a part of working well. The one thing I encourage people to do is to set yourself up to risk failure every single day because you get better at this with practice. And what's a, a good way to think about this is what can I do today that's out of my comfort zone? Well, it's not to say it's bad to stay in there, stay in there, but how do you move out of it too as well? 
Because when you move out of your comfort zone, you're pushing yourself, you're learning more, and you're pushing the people around you to set higher expectations of each other and therefore achieve more things than you ever thought was possible. But you can only do that if you risk not hitting those expectations every single day. So here's my takeaway. Embrace the idea that mistakes are a crucial part of learning and growing. Like Jeffrey, set out to exceed even your own expectations and don't be afraid to go after new and interesting projects. But remember that somewhere along the way, you will fail, and that's okay. Every job you have, every success, and every failure is just a stepping stone to your next greatest achievement. That's why one of our core values at LinkedIn is to live at the intersection of dreaming big, getting things done, and knowing how to have fun. Because if you're working every day to be the best and finding joy in the process, you can't go wrong, even if you fail sometimes. Follow the path for more episodes weekly and join the conversation about each episode on linkedin.com slash the path. The Path is a LinkedIn editorial production. Our production team includes Ava Ahmedbegi, Stephen Valdivia, and Rachel Wong. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Our head of original programming is Courtney Coop, and Dan Roth is our editor-in-chief. Thanks to Tatiana de Almeida, Caroline Gaffney, and Valerie Berry. And a special thank you to Charlene Lee for sharing her insights with us. To hear more from Charlene, subscribe to her newsletter, Leading Disruption, on LinkedIn.